Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Two people mooning one audience. Two people mooning one audience. Whatever. Mission Log, A Roddenberry Star Trek Podcast. Episode 185, Night Terrors. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for ideas and ideals that might well serve us today. Sorry to you, Ken, and to the audience uh, if I'm a little bit out of it this week. I, I've been having just the strangest dream lately. Dream? Wait, was it about two people mooning one audience? No. Yeah, me, uh, <laughs> me neither. Okay. This week, Night Terrors, the one where almost no one's having dreams and everyone's about to die. I've got some trivia to hit you with in a moment, but first, Ken's going to tell you how to get in touch with us. Thank you very much, John. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you would like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear from you. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember... We may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, John is going to tell you how to get in touch with trivia. <laughs> Feel the trivia, Ken. Grok it. Grok yeah. it. Reach. Reach. We reach. Yes. Brother. We reach yeah. trivia. All right. Today's story is by Sherry Goodhearts. We mentioned her before, uh, the writing intern who in season three wrote the story and the teleplay for The Most Toys. The teleplay here is by Pamela Douglas and Jerry Taylor. Of course, we know who Jerry Taylor is, but this is Pamela Douglas's first and only contribution to Star Trek. Um, Jerry Taylor actually talked at one point about how she really struggled to write this, to get it into shape and get it filmable. Um, we may hit on that again in just a little bit. The episode is directed by Les Landau. Now, many people involved with this episode have discussed in interviews in the years since that they they weren't so crazy about the final product. And that goes for Rick Berman and uh, Michael Piller and Jonathan Frakes, uh, but not Les Landau. He, he just flat out refuses to discuss it. Really? So, yeah. So we don't know what he has to say about it. Hmm. The Bretagne. Well, Bretagne is a name, uh, sometimes of people and sometimes of places. But uh, Bretagne, that's with an A instead of with an I, is the last name of Walter Hauser Bretagne. And if you don't know who he is, you should. In 1947, he invented the transistor at Bell Laboratories along with John Bardeen. That got both of them a Nobel Prize. We all know how important transistors are. If you find yourself stuck in the 1930s without them, then you'll have to use stone knives and bearskins to access the library computer. 
The ship in this episode is named after Britain, uh, but through a goof, the model builders put Britain with an I on the ship model, and it stayed that way. Now, in one of the on-screen details, when Data is scrolling through available elements to use as an explosive, one type requires a Hillebrand detonator. Hillebrand, other than being a tool company in L.A., is also the name of William Francis Hillebrand, a 19th century chemist. Um, other names pop up in that list. You have elements like Hutzelite, named after Gary Hutzel, Moyerite, named after Peter Moyer. These are all guys who worked in the uh, visual effects and uh, staff at Star Trek. There are many, many more. That's just a couple of them. Now, Guinan's gun. Guinan's got a gun in 10 forward, and I thought I recognized it. There's something about the geometry of that gun, the, the nozzle on the end of it, that if you know your nerdy sci-fi trivia, then you know this. That was used in Buck Rogers in the 25th century. <laughs> Seriously? Really, yeah, I swear. They had really cool little sidearms, and they had a, like a lucite nozzle on the end. The gun was black, but then they also had a rifle version of that that popped up every now and then. That is one of the rifle versions of that gun but they painted it gold because why not? Yeah. And it still has the, the same shape, the same, uh, same geometry of that prop. So very cool looking little prop. Um, costuming note here. Uh, we don't always talk about costumes, but uh, we kinda, I just thought it was so prominent. I had to mention it. We get a good look at Picard's uniform boots in the turbo lift. It's just right there, front and center, big as life. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the most part, Next Gen used off-the-shelf boots from a variety of manufacturers like Florsheim. So you just walk into a store and pick up a pair of Star Trek, the next generation uniform boots. These are a little different, though, with kind of a thick running shoe style sole, as opposed to the more formal stiff leather that had a a small heel on it. So if you see, they kind of change from shot to shot, person to person, depending on what they had at the time. Um, Can sleep is a big part of this episode, and I thought it might be valuable and trivia to have a little bit of interesting background on the science of sleep. Uh, Deprivation of REM sleep uh, studies have shown that this can lead to things like increased and sustained chronic pain, changes in mood, migraines actually lowering the threshold that gives people uh, migraines, uh, disruption of the process of storing memories. And uh, non-REM or NREM sleep is necessary, too. It's kind of like a reset of your neurotransmitters uh, to help you regain sensitivity, regulation of mood, learning ability, etc. Um, very interesting and important figure in all of this. Dr. William DeMent from Stanford um, carried out a number of studies. He's sort of the godfather of sleep sciences. And it really wasn't until his work in the 50s that we even knew about different stages of sleep, that, that, that such a thing existed. And he's the one who sort of connected rapid eye movement to dream state. So that was a lot of his work that led to this. Now, it's still not an exact science. And what's interesting is that uh, sort of a meta study, a group of studies published in the early 70s, concluded that the major predictor of performance during sleep loss uh, was the total amount of time spent asleep regardless of stage. So it really didn't matter if you were in REM sleep or not. Hmm. Um, But then... Other studies show that, uh, and this was kind of mid to late 90s, there was one in 1994, uh, that showed that perceptual learning, um, rather than uh, retention of memorized material, uh, could be affected. And actually, there might have been an improvement um, 8 to 10 hours uh, after a training session when only REM sleep 
was allowed in in that period. So you made sure you had REM sleep in that period. So the, the gist of it is this, that there aren't really studies that show major psychosis developing. And some of these studies contradict each other a little bit. Uh, but that's kind of where the science is right now. And by the way, I have some of this uh, the material. I have to thank. Uh, it's a Dr. Richard uh, Champion. Ch- oh, Champion. Very unlikely <laughs> name. Very unlikely name. But uh, somebody who uh, has studied sleep. So just wanted to get that in. Uh, and in case you have more questions, let me know. I'll point you out to some very good books. All right, let's talk about guest stars. So we have a number of them here. John Vickery as Andrus Hagen. Uh, you may have seen him on Babylon 5, Wings, Medium, uh, and movies like Dr. Giggles and Out of Bounds. He's from California, and I think... One of the most interesting aspects of his career is actually his stage work. So he's from California, but he studied in London. He did Macbeth on Broadway. He was in The Merry Wives of Windsor. Uh, Plus, he originated the role of Scar in The Lion King on Broadway. Pretty cool. And he will be back for more guest appearances on Star Trek in different roles. Uh, We also have uh, Duke Muskian as Ensign Gillespie. He has a huge track record of TV guest appearances, a mentalist, flash forward, NYPD Blue, ER, Dynasty, and just so much more. We have Craig Hurley playing Ensign Peoples, longtime actor and commercial voice actor as well. You may have seen him on Life Goes On, Highway to Heaven, Beverly Hills 90210, The Real One, um, 21 Jump Street, and so much more. We have uh, Lynne Chapman back as Ensign Rager, and uh, we have Brian Tochi as Ensign Lin. Now, we have talked about Brian before. He was one of the kids. He was Ray in And the Children Shall Lead in the original series. He guested on ER, Hawaii Five-0, Police Story. Of course, he was in the Revenge of the Nerds movies. The guy's resume just goes on and on. But to me, he will always be Tigar from the 1977 filmation series Space Academy, which had one of the grooviest TV themes of the 1970s. Dreaming. I am told one does it when one is sleeping. But what happens when no one can? Let us let John tell us. Prologue. Around a binary star system, the Enterprise finds the long-lost USS Reliant. I mean, I mean, Britain, totally the Britain, not the Reliant. There's been no communication from her for a month, and she now sits adrift. Deanna Troy senses something weird, but she can't quite place why, and she asks to beam over with the landing party of Riker, Worf, Data, and Dr. Crusher. There is life aboard, if you look past all the horrifying corpses. Deanna finds one survivor. He's a Betazoid like her, and he is in a catatonic state. Act 1. The Betazoid is Andrus Hagen, not Swedish. And he's not saying much of anything, not even to Deanna, other than words here and there about voices. Dr. Crusher informs Captain Picard that it must have been chaos in the Britain, as everyone met a violent end. People barricaded in their rooms with weapons, dead in the corridors, probably someone showering with their clothes on somewhere. Back on the other ship, technically everything is all right, everything works anyway, but the engines just aren't firing up for some reason. Dr. Crusher has some more bad news for Picard. There's no reason she can determine why all the deaths on the Britain took place. There were no drugs. Everyone was healthy. They just all attacked each other with phasers, knives, and bare hands. Not 
not not bare hands as a big furry animal, but you know they they weren't wearing gloves. According to logs, there was a good deal of paranoia and stress on board. One officer scared of another, killing each other. Meanwhile, and where the hell is this exactly? Dana Troy is in a green void just floating around. There's just a disembodied voice saying something about eyes in the dark, one moon circle, and it just doesn't make any sense. Then we know. Dana wakes up suddenly, out of breath, from the strange dream she's just had. Act 2. Back on the Bretagne, Jordi LaForge is still trying to figure out why the engines won't work, and about that time, Ensign Peoples is starting to hear things. He thinks someone is still alive on board, but Jordi assures him it's just his nerves. In sickbay on the Enterprise, Deanna is still having a tough time reaching Andrus, even telepathically. She asks him about the voices he hears, but he just replies that they're bright and right out there. How about a little domestic distraction? Keiko arrives back at home, her quarters with Miles O'Brien, and is frustrated, complaining about work and dropping Latin phrases like she's been reading Virgil. Miles has worked up, too. He's pacing back and forth and accuses Keiko of being late because she's been flirting with Tom Corbin, space cadet. She's a bit shocked at his jealousy and tries to defuse the situation. It doesn't work, and in the old tradition, Miles storms off to a bar. At 10 forward, he sits down next to Ensign Gillespie, who launches into a story about another crewman seeing the ghost of an old Starfleet officer. Fed up, Miles leaves to probably go stand quietly by himself in the transporter room. In his ready room, Picard's doorbell is chiming like crazy, but no one is at the door. The man is just trying to read, but this is getting distracting. Then there's a knock at the door. It's Deanna and Dr. Crusher, and they have a worry that people on the Enterprise are starting to experience what happened on the Bretagne. Hallucinations, stress, erratic behavior. Picard assures them that they're getting out of there. They'll tow the Bretagne away from there within the hour. When he gives the order, Ensign Rager can't complete it. She's a bit of a mess at her station, and she's relieved by Ensign Lynn. Engines are started up, but nothing happens. The engines don't work, and now the Enterprise is adrift too. Act 3. Ten days later. Ten days? Yes, ten days later, the Enterprise is still adrift next to the Bretagne. Message was sent to Starfleet, but it'll take weeks to be returned. Data explains what he thinks is going on. They're trapped. More specifically, they're in a Tycan's Rift, which is an anomaly in space that absorbs the energy around it. There might be a way out of it. All they need is to create a huge explosion— Bad news is that their weapons aren't enough, and they can't replicate enough volatile materials to make it happen. Privately, in a turbolift, Picard and Riker share their concerns. They are both not themselves, feeling edgy and irritated. Data is the only one not affected by whatever is going on. Picard orders Riker to get some rest. The captain heads up to the bridge by himself. The turbolift seemingly starts to close in around him, so that by the time he gets to the bridge, Picard is helpless and terrified on the floor. Not the most dignified way to make an entrance, but he soldiers on, asking Data to join him in his ready room. There's a possibility, Data says, that the deflector can be used as a weapon like they did with the Borg to break free of the Tycan's rift. Okay, but the deal is this. The crew may all be going mad, and that leaves everything up to Data, if and when the captain is incapacitated too. How's that nap going for Riker? Well, after walking around his quarters for a while, feeling like someone else is in there with him, he tucks in for some shut-eye. 
That is short-lived, though, when he hallucinates a whole bunch of snakes crawling around under the covers with him. In the morgue, there's a morgue on board, yes, and a rather large morgue. Dr. Crusher is studying some of the bodies that have come over from the Bertain. She wants more brain tissue samples, but now she feels like someone is in the room with her, too. At once, she turns her back, and then all the corpses are sitting up. She knows it's a hallucination, though, and tells them to go away. And they do. Well, at least they have the decency to lie down again. This kind of gives Crusher an idea. She sees the captain and asks if he remembers his dreams. He says he rarely does. But lately, he doesn't think he's been dreaming at all. Crusher suspects that no one else has either, except for Troy, who's been having nightmares. The brain chemistry in the crew of the Bretagne matches that now of the crew of the Enterprise. Her concern is that neither they nor the Enterprise crew have been getting any REM sleep. That has been affecting their performance and state of mind. If they can't turn that around, then everyone on the Enterprise will go insane. Act 4. Troy briefly enters her nightmare world again. That same disembodied voice speaks to her, and upon waking, she asks Andrus if he knows anything more. He keeps thinking double, but that doesn't help. And nothing Dr. Crusher does is helping the crew to get the REM sleep they need. In 10 forward, the crazy is getting ready to boil over. Frustration is high. That's when talk of conspiracy begins, and it might start to get violent. Down in engineering, Geordi is tired and distracted while Data is doing what he can to help. That deflector dish idea they had earlier? Totally a good idea, but sad trombone, it doesn't work. The energy just gets absorbed by the rift, and they can't do it again. Needing a break from the bridge, Worf goes to his quarters and pulls out a knife. Seriously, he's not handling this well, and it's only because Deanna sensed his mental snap that she follows him. He's prepared to gut himself to avoid the dishonor of losing his mental and physical strength. She talks him from the ledge, reminding him that this whole thing is an illusion. They go to sickbay together. Act 5. At this point, Data has taken command of the Enterprise. Deanna is still trying to get something out of Andrus, but it's all non-sequitur about one moon, double, eyes in the dark. It makes no sense to her, except that's what she heard in her dream, too. Maybe that's just what Deanna needed to hear to put the pieces together. As a Betazoid, her rim sleep occurs at a different frequency than humans. There are beings using that to communicate with her, which is disrupting the sleep cycle of everyone else. Those beings are trapped, just like the Enterprise, and if they can be reached, then they may be able to work together to free themselves from the rift. Data suspects there is another ship on the other side of the rift, and he suggests sending a message. He and Deanna look through a catalog of substances available to them on the ship, and the simplest one to communicate is hydrogen. One moon, an electron, circling a proton. So Deanna needs to communicate telepathically with the unseen aliens through a dream state that the Enterprise is going to send a whole bunch of hydrogen through that rift that they'll need to detonate. Everybody got that? Okay. Deanna prepares to go back to sleep, and Data prepares the Bassard collectors to send all the hydrogen that means energy will be drained and life support will take a hit, which also means the crew are being limited to designated shelter areas. And 10 forward, all the hotheads are getting hotter, worried that Picard is sending them to their doom. Security is called, punches are thrown, and then Guinan pulls out a trick she must have seen Granny use on the Beverly Hillbillies 400 years ago, firing around at the ceiling to break up the fight. People calm down for a moment. Deanna's asleep. 
she's in REM stage at this point. Data does his thing. The Bussard collectors are activated and red hydrogen streams toward the rift. Deanna is floating around in her dream state, desperately trying to find the voice on the other end. Just as all the hydrogen is depleted, it seems nothing has happened. But a moment later, a huge explosion flares out in space. The Enterprise power is restored, and as it pulls away, another glowing ship passes by. Deanna wakes up, relieved, and the Enterprise heads to Starbase. Data, still acting captain, orders Picard to get some rest. Oh, and uh, Andrus is fine. Probably. The end. Just so I'm clear, they were caught in a Titan's Rift. Yes. Not a booby trap. Uh, well, you know. Like a naturally occurring booby trap. Oh, so not not like a booby trap somebody set. Right. But a booby trap that just happens in space. <laughs> you, kind of, you kind of call the rift a booby trap. You could, indeed. Because isn't that what the whole thing about the booby trap was? You go in there and then you try to get out and it just sucks all your energy away, right? The more energy you use, you, you stay in the booby trap. Yeah. All right. Just checking. Hey, great to see the Reliant. Thank you very much for mentioning it, by the way. Although I will say, as much as I love that ship design, and I always have, um, never really ends well for the people on that ship. (laughs) No. Doesn't seem to anyway. Now, I can only name two, the Reliant, for whom things ended poorly, and and, uh, Bretain, for whom things uh, ended poorly. Well, you know, the, the Stargazer was kind of a version of the Reliant. And that was the one that was the one that, uh, that Picard, Picard was on, right? Was on. Yeah. yeah. And it didn't end well either. Okay. Yeah. So I love this so, ship, but yeah. just never get on one. Yeah. I didn't mention it in trivia because we wanted to mention it here, but that, that is a redress of that model of the Reliant. And it's a really cool looking ship. I always like that. If you could, if you had to own a starship, that would be the one to own just because it's kind of compact. Yep. You don't need a big crew. You have 34 people. Yeah. On Chain, 35 if you count Andrus, but he's not good for much. Heck, Khan took it over with 12. Now, yeah. I mean, granted, they were 12 of the best people, you know, the galaxy had to, well, the smartest. I don't want to say the right. best. Right. <laughs> they were 12 of the most genetically enhanced people that you'll ever come across. Yes. But yeah, still, you can run it with a skeleton crew. Then again, end of the show, Data's running the Enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, um, oh, I, I did want to mention that the score, we don't always talk about the music in the show, but I, I've mentioned Ron Jones before, and I feel like the score in this is really cool. It's got like an 80s horror movie vibe to it, which is exactly what they're going for. Yeah. But it really works. It's not quite a John Carpenter thing, but it's just a neat, creepy thing that happens throughout. One of my favorites. John so. Carpenter thing. I like what you did. I know you didn't mean uh, to, yeah, yeah, but no. I like it. Yeah. Uh, another thing that you all always like um call back to an old show best of both yep. worlds right here hey we can do the deflector dish like they did in that old episode what episode was that was it booby trap no it was <laughs> no. best of both worlds <laughs> was when they did that yeah, yeah so so good to see that uh star trek is gaining a memory of um star trek oh yeah <laughs> nice nice yeah um, I have to say that overall, the the body language of the actors, the, the acting overall, pretty good here. But uh, I, I really liked going back and watching the body language of mm-hmm. the actors here, particularly Patrick Stewart. Really great. Um, watch him in a scene where he isn't doing anything. Yeah. His posture is different. His gaze is different. There's a moment where he's talking to Data in the uh, ready room. And actually, Data is the one doing the talking. Um and his gaze, you just see him lower from the eyes down to his mouth and kind of to his shoulders. He's just not there. 
And it's really cool. Yeah. It's a really nice thing to see. Very subtle, but absolutely sells it in the moment. I also liked um, the captain of the Britain. Her um, video. Why wasn't Picard watching that already, by the way? Yeah, right. But okay. Just right away. He's yeah. like reading a book. He's like, yeah, everybody's got this. I'm going to sit here and chill in my ready room. And then, and then uh, Crusher is the one who says, uh, take a look at this. You should really see this. And it turns out it's captain's logs from another ship. I would think that that would be the first thing that I as captain would do or second. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was a really good book, though. Um, but yeah, the video of, of the captain of the Britain when she's when she's like you know pulling out her hair. I mm-hmm. mean, she was she was crazy as the day is long, and uh, it, and and yeah. like to the point that it was uncomfortable for me to watch it. Yeah, it, it, it's a great moment, and, and actually, I think it plays best because it's on that little monitor. Mm-hmm. You're not seeing it in your face, you know. And I can just imagine the director saying, "Okay, more crazy." Yeah. more crazy just keep bringing the crazy and then yeah. they've got that that take of of her like that it's really nice yeah um where the heck are they <laughs> um so let's do the math here the enterprise has been adrift for 10 days yes and can't expect an answer from subspace for another two weeks right it's one of those situations where we can actually do the, the calculation here and we can figure out exactly how fast subspace travels, which is as fast as the story needs it to go. Yeah, like a turbo lift. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right. There's no hope for us. Why is there no hope yeah. for us? Because there needs to not be. Right. right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> hey, I got a question about uh, Miles and Keiko. Yeah, bring it. Were they brought <laughs> together just to give us the married couple? angle because we've actually seen almost no relationship between them they were like we saw the pre-wedding jitters right so there's like a wedding a married thing that they have to bring to the show or not have to bring to the show but they choose to uh there's the weirdness around food although in that episode we did get we did get some understanding between the two of them because miles was talking about boy some people don't like cardassians huh and she's like hey looked in the mirror lately Mm. but otherwise um not you know not i mean it, it's it's been like and now it's like the petty jealousy thing yeah. i mean was there a real thought put into their relationship or was it just a way to introduce <laughs> the topic without no i'm a, i'm actually asking you a, a question yeah. as somebody who has like you know paid more attention to the writing of the show sure well Cause we I, didn't I, even get courtship you. out of these two it's just like oh so here's cole meany here's cole meany oh he has a name now oh he's got a, he's he's getting married today really yeah <laughs> that yeah. that came on quick well, so, you know, remember back to Data's day that the original idea was not to marry off Miles. Mm-hmm. They, they had played with the idea of marrying off Picard at one point. Woo. Uh, yeah. Whoa. Right? No. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they had played with the idea of Miles marrying someone else. Uh, right. One of the instances that we've seen. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, here's the unfortunate thing is that we always say we don't jump the timeline. We don't jump the timeline. We don't jump the timeline because we're not – we're not trying to build this interwoven tapestry of the encyclopedia of Star Trek. That's not our job here, and we would go insane trying to do that. Right. However, it's important to know that those two characters have a life after Star Trek The Next Generation. Right. So we definitely do make that payoff later. Good. But right now, oh my God, is it not paying off? Well, I mean, it's, it's just weird. It's just like we've yeah. just introduced the, it's almost like we've introduced a bunch of couple tropes in a way yeah. to the show. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, because yeah. I know we don't jump the timeline yet. I do know that they go on to, yes, mm-hmm. I know they become a much bigger thing and a much more uh, realized uh, couple at some point. 
Um, but yeah, it, to this point, it's just sort of like, oh, you know, what we need we need a married couple, right? You know, right. we need a kid. Yeah. Well, we get kids, but we kill them off. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> right. or we just send right. them off someplace. Let's uh, send them away. Let's get a married couple instead. Yeah, it, it's unfortunate because it, you know the idea was there. Okay, let's explore a relationship on board, but we can't explore that relationship in somebody who's too important, mm-hmm. and we can't explore it in a way that we can't get out of it. So that's the trouble. That that's where the 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 intention here of the writing meets the reality of how they produced the show, and it just didn't quite add up, or it hasn't so far. Yeah. Um, something that I've just found really funny, I don't know if you noticed it too, uh, when Riker and Picard are in the turbo lift and they're having this serious conversation about what's happening, and they're kind of speaking in hushed tones, and then Riker just straight up yells, Deck 8! Yeah. At the turbo lift computer. I'm like, you know what? The computer already hears everything you're saying. He's angry. He is. He's testy. He is. I actually really like that. I mean, it, I really? kind of wish he hadn't yelled it. Yeah. But but I mean, it, like you talked about, I mean, everybody is playing their, their level of crazy pretty well in this episode, yeah. I think, including him. Because there was a sudden shift from, I mean, it's amazing. He's like, well, I'm not feeling like myself, but mostly, you know, I'm okay. And right. Picard's like, yeah, we'll go to bed. And, you know, at that point, <laughs> I mean, I thought, I thought Riker's two choices were I'm going to either yell something or hit somebody. Yeah, <laughs> and so you know, I like the fact that he you know chose to yell it, but yeah, I mean that anger just came on really, really quickly in his face before he even yelled the, uh, before he yelled the direction. I guess my reaction would be relief. Oh, I get to go home and go to bed. Well, Thank the, you. he just told Thank the captain you. he feels like there's something waiting for him. Yeah, it'll pass. And his and the captain just ordered <laughs> yeah. him to go to that thing. Oh, you know that scary place you were just talking about? Get over there. Yeah, go Face on, buddy. Fears, Riker. <laughs> right. Do it. Do it. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's an odd little jump where uh, Data is in command. Mm-hmm. It, he, we assume it because he says it. I go maybe at the beginning of Act Three or Act Four. Um, but he says he's in command, but then later on he looks back at Picard in the captain's chair mm-hmm. and calls him captain. That's right before the hydrogen blast. So maybe this is like an honorary thing. He maybe. still he actually still says that he's captain afterwards. He says his last uh, his last order as acting captain is uh, to order Picard to bed. Yep. He sure does, yeah. So he, I, I guess at that moment with the hydrogen, it's like we're going to prop up Captain Picard in the big chair <laughs> to make it look good. And then, but Data's still in charge. Maybe yeah, it's so. Just a, it was just an odd thing for him to call him Captain right before he did that, kind of look for approval before he did that. Well, I mean, he did the same thing down in engineering, right? Mm-hmm. He, he's waiting for Geordi to figure out what it is they're going to do. And obviously, if, if, if Data is acting Captain at that point, he doesn't have to wait for anybody to do anything anymore. And yeah. yet he is still relaying orders back to Worf on the bridge, but waiting for Jordy to do it. It's like he's giving everybody, it's like he's giving everybody a chance to be the best they can possibly be. And mm-hmm. then when it looks like they're going to muff it up, then he's like, "Oh no, okay, I got this." Um, Maybe it's the state of being sensitive. Nah. <laughs> You're not going to get me to say it this week. Nope. Um, I love the scene at Picard's door. And it got me thinking to a ridiculous degree about the doors on the Enterprise. Because somebody actually mentioned this either on Facebook or I can't remember where, but somebody mentioned last week after um, Geordi went running into the holodeck where real Leah Brahms and holodeck Leah Brahms were talking. Right. Because um, he went full tilt and, and yet the doors opened for him, right? <laughs> right. Was it the elevators in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that were psychic? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. All right. I wondered about yeah. that. Uh, well, I wondered about the doors on the Enterprise and our unsung friend, the Enterprise computer. Yeah. Um, Deanna had her issue in clues, right? Yeah. And, and Worf had to call for security override. Now, he's head of security. You would think his standing there 
maybe he should have like taken three steps back and then run at the door and it would have just opened. Mm. I don't know. Mm. But he calls for a security override. When Jordy went running onto the holodeck last week, it just let him run right in because right. I guess it figured, well, it's his holodeck program or he's going to bust his nose on the door, one of the two. Right. But, I, Picard never has to punch a code to walk into his ready room. Mm. But nobody else can just walk into the ready room. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to figure out, is it, like, is it is it cued to his communicator? Is it a biometric thing? Or is the computer assessing situations and deciding on a case-by-case basis? And is that how Troy was able to get into Worf's quarters when Worf was about to kill himself? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's the thing. The, the computer is essentially making a judgment call. Right? I mean, yeah, we've seen... <laughs> We've seen you able to fake out the computer mm-hmm. by just leaving a combat somewhere. Yes. If I say, where is Captain Picard? Well, if Captain Picard left his combat, you know, on the vanity on his, you know, uh, uh, in his quarters before he went to Inexplicably, work. Inexplicably, Commander Riker, Captain Picard is sitting on his vanity in his quarters. <laughs> right. He's just right there. <laughs> So that's the only way the computer knows, which is interesting then because if I'm, say, walking toward a door wearing that comm badge versus running at a very quick pace toward that door with a comm badge, that means two different things. Yeah. The computer is seeing it in, you know, at that speed. But if I'm not wearing a comm badge. We need an com- episode where somebody just breaks their nose on a door. They do. Yeah, I'm sure that's in the blooper reel somewhere. <laughs> well, <laughs> right? no, not in real life. I just want to see it happen. I want to see it happen sometime where, like, Riker's in his quarters, you know, maybe with one of the young ensigns who's caught his eye, and another young ensign yep. has heard about it, and so she's upset, and so she goes to storm into his quarters, Yep. and then she pulls a Marsha Brady. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had one other question about uh, the whole REM sleep thing. Yeah. Well, what happens with U2 sleep, first of all? But no. Yeah, good question. More seriously. <laughs> Except not really. If sleep happens on a different frequency for humans than betazoids, right? Mm-hmm. Couldn't they build a transmitter on that frequency? I mean, if we know that there is a frequency, could they not build oh, a transmitter and send yeah. a big honking message, you know, out on that frequency and then also um, have it act as a receiver? And also, I have to wonder, do humans and Klingons hit room sleep on the same frequency? Because we know there's at least one on the ship. Right. And yet he's going through the same problem. Or or, are aliens accidentally getting their signals jammed? I mean, is is everybody getting their signals jammed except for the betazoid betazoid angle? I kept wondering about this because Guinan doesn't seem affected by it. She (laughs) seems pretty okay. She can handle a gun. Yeah. Um, Anyone else? uh, Vulcans? Where's Dr. Solar when you need her? Where is Dr. Solar ever? I know, right? (laughs) Really missing Dr. Solar. Yeah. Uh, there was one other thing about Guinan, by the way. I got all excited for a moment. She said that she got her gun on uh, Magus 3. Yes. Right? So close to Lucian. Oh, yes. So close to Magus yes. 2. So yeah. close to Shakari, we think we determined <laughs> in Star Trek V, right? Except yeah. I watched it with the subtitles. And uh, the Magus 3, where she went gun shopping, mm. was M-A-G-U-S and the number 3. Yeah place where lucian lived was m-e-g-u-s hyphen t-u yeah yeah so megas uh, 2 remains a uh, a forgotten if not undiscovered country in 10 forward gynan fired her gun at the ceiling it made me wonder what is directly above 10 forward. Also, I am not sure a bar is the best place for a gun. I feel like one of the big themes here in this show, mm-hmm. 
fortunately, Picard just tells us. <laughs> he just essentially he looks at the camera and tells us what uh, the, one of the themes here is. It's great. Uh, it's a terrifying prospect to lose one's mind. Uh, then he tells that story about his grandfather deteriorating and how he could barely make his way home. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, we will all see this. Uh, every one of us will see this in some way, shape, or form at some point. And, and it's uh, gut-wrenching to hear him talk about it because you can immediately relate on on some level. Um, and then bookend that with the wharf scene, which is particularly disturbing as a way to drive home this theme. Um, he is ready to take his life at the prospect of not being who he thinks he should be at the, the prospect of deteriorating mentally, physically. Um, fortunately we have Deanna come in and deliver what I feel like is a very cling on line. She knows how to handle them to admit that you are afraid gives you strength at least enough to stop him in the moment, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but it, it, it is an interesting idea that, that he handles that fear that way while Picard is handling his fear, reminiscing about, uh, about his grandfather. Um, I also thought, you know, I realize that everyone in this episode is not in their right minds, very specifically, they are not in their right minds, mm -hmm. but I couldn't help, but think of everyone who doesn't know what's going on, freaking out. So like the people in 10-4, they're ready to throw punches. They're, they're dreaming up these wild conspiracy theories. Compare that to all the tranquility when we've almost blown up the Enterprise a few times. How, how easy it was for Picard and Riker to sit on the bridge and just say, yep, we're going to set the auto-destruct, maybe or maybe not make an announcement. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we haven't heard or seen people on the Enterprise absolutely going nuts. <laughs> well, they've never taken us off the bridge for those moments, have they? No, no. <laughs> it would actually no. be interesting to like... So the last scene of one of those episodes where they almost blow up the Enterprise isn't 10 Ford. Yeah. And it's Guinan, like, yeah. you know, picking glass out of people going, every time you two. <laughs> I don't know. It's, I mean, because here's the thing. They've been stuck there for a very long time. They're all losing sleep. They're all going a little mental. I mean, as you mentioned, they're not in their right minds in this episode. But the thing is, usually when they're about to blow up the Enterprise, I mean, as you say, they don't make an announcement, generally yeah. speaking. I mean, this is a this is a we're in a standoff with somebody. We have to stop this really quickly. I'm going to tell them we're going to blow up the ship. And just for fun, we're going to if we have to. Um, mm -hmm. so, I mean, there's no time for anybody else to worry, which, you know, I think you and I think that's how the peeling potatoes joke started, right? Yeah. You and I are is. down there yeah. and nobody even tells us, I mean, it's, I mean, yeah. which has got to be true for the whole place, but I mean, like you and I, after a while, I think even down there in the lowliest, low parts of the ship mm -hmm. would notice that looking outside, it's the same view for 11 days now. Right. Plus I'm getting a little edgy. You're getting a little edgy more than we normally do when we stand here <laughs> peeling potatoes all day. Right. I thought the, I thought... I don't know that there was much thought put into what all of their fears were or examining all of their fears necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, although maybe there was. I mean, certainly what Worf was afraid of. I mean, Worf, it seemed to me you were saying, well, Worf, it, this whole debilitating thing where he loses his strength and he loses his mind, that's not what he says he's afraid of. What he says he's afraid of is not being a warrior, not being able to fight this thing that's going to get him, right? Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I read that as... 
these are the faculties being taken away from me in my in my mind these are the things that make me the warrior that i am hmm. so you know oh that's it, interesting it, because i thought that was i thought it was just picard saying what picard's fear was Mm. He doesn't want to go nuts. I mean, because everybody's mm-hmm. got something different. Miles isn't mm-hmm. like, oh, man, I'm going to get old and die. You know, Miles is like, wow, you're cheating on me, aren't you, Keiko? Or you're, yeah. you know, or you're flirting with somebody from a 1950s serial. Um, <laughs> Gillespie is afraid of being lied to. He's afraid of being duped. He's afraid of not knowing why he's dying. Um, see also, uh, was it Tormelin? Was mm. that from, uh, that was uh, Corbomite, right? Was yeah, it Dormelin right. who uh, who was going who was freaking out because of that thing that was out there and was going to get them and all that stuff? Right, right. Fear of the unknown, which is one of the things that we decided was one of the uh, one of the uh, messages behind the Corbomite maneuver. It's the same thing happening here with Gillespie, except the unknown is truly unknown in this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Picard is afraid of being pranked. <laughs> True, <laughs> maybe not yes. really. Uh, yeah. Being yeah. crushed in an elevator, although crushed in an elevator, the closer he gets to the bridge, the closer he gets to command. But then there's also just the being afraid of losing his mind thing, like you talked yeah. about. Uh, yeah. Riker fears snakes in his bed, or I, someone waiting for him. Go ahead. I, f- I fear both of those things. Well, I, yeah, but why yeah. is it is it interesting at all that that Riker's fear happens when he's in bed? Oh, that Riker who oh. beds hmm everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> that happens there. Honestly, yeah. the one that I felt like was the most that told us the most about the character. Well, no, there were two. Worf certainly, although Worf yeah. is the sort of more Klingon than Klingon. If I can't fight it or kill it, then I got to kill me. Yeah, well, warrior is his identity. Yeah, that, right. That is the the total summation of his identity. Yeah, well, for now, yeah, for now. Never mind the fact that he's a dad. Yeah, because <laughs> well, he's forgotten that already. Because he doesn't mind. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah, he pays it no mind at all. Yeah, um, Crusher, I thought actually had one of the most interesting um, fear things happen here. She fears dead people coming back to life, and who can blame her? Um, yes. You know, working with them and in a room full of them. Um, here again, though, we have a shot of Beverly's amazing willpower, just like in Remember Me. Like her thought was, "There's nothing wrong with me. There must be something wrong with the universe." Right? Mm-hmm. I think that was the line. Yeah. She is sure enough of herself here that when she starts to go crazy, she's like, no, I'm not going crazy. You cut it out. And her yeah. and her uh, her hallucinations go away at that point, which is interesting because we don't she's not always the the most well-realized character, I don't think. But but that's twice now that I can think of where she just showed like her sense of self is yeah. is so strong that it can overcome, oh, not existing, you know, as was the case in Remember Me, or, you know, these hallucinations that are driving everybody else uh, buggy. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty fascinating that we get that insight into her again. This is kind of a... <laughs> Forgive me. What? It just occurred to me. I was just trying to think, of, hey, what was Jordy's uh, fear? But then I realized Jordy's worst fear was realized last week. <laughs> so we don't actually need yeah, to worry about yeah. him this week. We don't right. at all. Yeah. You know, this is kind of taking the conversation in a different direction, but um, why not? Because I think we'll come back and hit the themes again uh, when we do our wrap-up. Mm-hmm. But um, sleep, I, I feel like for whatever reason, sleep as a thing that we need to be concerned about mm-hmm. Uh, that has really shown up more in my face in the last couple of years than I ever remember. Um, I would say that in the last two or three years, I have seen more articles pop up, uh, whether it's in social media or elsewhere, and I've seen more devices on the market 
that offer to do things like track your sleep patterns, find out the quality of the sleep that you're getting. And, and I had a bit of a problem with those, at least as the technology exists now. But I love the idea of intense sleep studies. And that's why I kind of back in trivia, I talked about uh, the, the work that I had read about. Um, I would like to think that we could get to a point in the not too distant future where you can have devices that actually offer up some useful data and then suggestions for, for follow-up. Um, so throughout the episode, I was thinking, man, it's surprising that a monitor of some sort isn't part of the standard issue betting on the enterprise. Um, but then who was actually thinking about this kind of thing in 1991? But you know how in the original series, somebody would lay down on a bed in sick bay, and then all those little levers and dials start going and show you heart rate and EEG and uh, every other, you know, respiration, everything on that monitor above the bed. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is the kind of thing that maybe once they started the suspicion, everybody gets hooked up to an EEG to see what they're what they're actually doing, what their brain activity actually is when they sleep. Say that again. I'm sorry. So, so maybe this is the the wrong thing of you know rewriting an episode mm -hmm. as we sometimes do. But you could have shaved off a little bit of time, a little bit of study here by uh, actually hooking up people to an EEG to find out what is their brain activity when they're sleeping. Instead, you wait 10 days and Dr. Crusher says, hey, have you been dreaming? Well, it seems like if people are hallucinating and they're on edge and they're getting headaches and they're doing all these other things, that should be a piece of equipment they've actually got. Hmm. And if they don't actually just have that piece of equipment in sickbay, it seems like that would be a pretty useful piece of equipment to have in your bedroom. Forgive me, but I, the reason I the reason I needed you to say it again is because I actually got lost in thinking about they need so like any Star Trek that happens from now on is going to have to be super careful to not do what happened in the Phantom Menace, right? Because Star Wars was like this dirty. I'm sorry, A New Hope, Episode Four mm -hmm. was like this mm -hmm. dirty, rundown. Yeah, we got stuff, but sometimes you have to hit it to make it go. You know, unless you're the Empire. But yeah. otherwise, I mean, you know, we're kind of we're kind of like putting everything together with bailing wire and gum, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you go back about 25, 30 years for the Phantom Menace, and boy, is technology shiny! Right? It's like right. it's like shiny and good. And now it's possible that was a difference in socioeconomic whatever. But what I'm thinking about is because you're right. You say who was thinking about this in 1991? Yeah, we weren't thinking about the quantified life in 1991. The way we do today. I'm going to think yeah. that measures how many things I have to measure different parts of like my activity. Right. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And I might have something that calibrates all of those things together. So that they work with whatever platform I'm choosing to use. Right. So like if if just for fun, let's say a new series of Star Trek were to go back to the time of the 1701B or the 1701C, mm -hmm. they need to make cool. sure that everybody's not wearing like a heart rate monitor. Even though yeah. we've all got them now, they don't have them in the 24th century. Right. Did, right. I mean, did we, yeah. do we maybe, like, it's like sometime in the 21st century, sometime like 10 years from now, do we all go nuts because we all know too much about, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I can't come out tonight. My heart rate is about one third of a second off. Mm -hmm. I mean, are we, are we getting, are we getting drilling down so much into this useless data? Hmm. Yeah, sorry. That's why I got distracted. I apologize. Yeah, no, you're well, kind of right. I mean, hooking up to an EEG might have been an okay thing, but... At the same time, had they actually figured out that that's what's going on yet? 
Well, see, and that's why I think that uh, certain technologies, certain technologies like this, are very useful. The, the the idea of the wearable that can track your heart rate, or you know, the the ease and ability to get accurate blood sugar information. This is all great. Yes. Um, the the sleep devices, I, I kind of wonder about. You know, I, I buy this two hundred dollar thing, I hook it up to my bed, or I put an app near me, or whatever it's supposed to do. Yeah. And then in the morning, I look at it and it says, "Hey, uh, you didn't sleep too well." <laughs> And I look at the app and I say, yeah, because I feel like crap. Um, what are we going to do about it? Well, yeah. good luck. Yeah, you know? I know. That's. I, I feel like actually I, I was doing the sleep tracking thing for a while when I had a Fitbit. Mm-hmm. And then I, my Fitbit came off a couple of times and I realized, yeah, in the morning I was getting up, I was looking at it and it really meant nothing to me. Yeah. And so it was sort of like, well, now it's just something to worry about. So I'm right. just going to quit tracking my sleep instead. Maybe now, I don't think that will always be the case. Right. I mean, I, I really I have a lot of confidence in technology, and I think that information can get more accurate and actually be useful. Hmm. But I was thinking, boy, by the 24th century, that would be great. <laughs> that would be a really good yeah. thing to have. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe we got over the need for it. Maybe. Generally speaking, and then something maybe. like this happens. Like they don't have all the they don't carry around all the explosives they might need to get out of a. Uh, Tycan's Rift. Yeah. They also don't carry around all the sleep monitors because who doesn't sleep well in the 24th century? <laughs> right. Maybe that's the thing. Um, let's talk about something much more, is aspirational the right word? Sure. Um, we have to dream in order to survive. Yeah. I know that wasn't the point of the episode, but I want that on the t-shirt. Mm-hmm. I want it on a bumper sticker. I want it everywhere. I, I love I just, just that statement by itself. We have to dream in order to survive. Yeah. That's all. I no, I love that. It's a gem. I, it's yeah. it's a gem line and and you know, it, it's something that I think we should all say forever. I'm reading a um sadly I'm only partway through it, so I can't tell you how the whole thing comes out, although I would want to spoil it for you anyway, but Robert J Sawyer's got a new al- uh, album. Robert J Sawyer's <laughs> wow. got a new book. I know, guy's amazing. He's, He's got a new perfect. book out called uh, Quantum Night. Um and in it, it turns out there's a whole class of people uh, that they refer to in the book as PZ, which I want to say were philosophers zombies, which is basically people who don't actually have a, sort of an internal monologue or an internal dialogue going. They're not really thinking. They're just sort of doing. Wow. But, you know, set in sort of like the modern day kind of thing uh, to say that, you know, we have to dream in order to survive. Uh, it seems like it would apply. Although I don't think that's anything you can actually change with those people. I think it's just a natural state for them. We haven't, I haven't gotten that far in the book, though, so I can't say. And I don't think that's a big part of the book, actually. So don't be mad at me if you think I've spoiled it. I haven't. <laughs> okay. um, but it's a uh, so often it seems like I see so many people who are just kind of like, yeah, you know, I go to work, come home, watch TV, go to bed, go to work, yeah. come home, watch TV, go to bed. And the idea that that's I mean, and if, if you're fine with that, great. I, but uh, at the same time, we don't get uh, we don't get transistors. At that right. point, do we? We don't get all right. kinds of things. Uh, so the idea that we have to dream to survive uh, was just a lovely thing to hear stated. With the crew of the Enterprise returned to their regularly scheduled dreaming, it is time to see what we can take from this episode. Night terrors. 
which is actually the name of my Alice Cooper cover band. Nice. Um, yeah. Glad to wrap it up today. Um, and we will wrap it up as we always do in the time-honored tradition, where we ask each other if the episode holds up and what are the messages and do those messages hold up. So, Ken, I would love to hear from you if Night Terrors holds up. Um, there is a big problem with this episode, and it's, it's the parts that deal with Troy. Uh, and unfortunately, that's sort of what the action of the episode hinges on. Yeah. Um, when Troy is walking in her dream state at the very beginning, it's wonderful. I actually was struck by that image when she's sort of walking flat into nothing. It's great. And then when she starts flying in her dream state, it's just terrible. Um, it takes you out of it. It yeah. totally takes you out of it. It does. Yeah. And additionally, um, in the end, when she's like, you know, because Data's like, okay, you're only going to have two minutes. And so she spends, what, minute 58 trying to see these things that she hasn't seen to this point, right? Because she has mm-hmm. to see them so she can tell them, even though they're telling her and she still doesn't see them. You know, she can hear them without seeing them, so maybe she could tell them without seeing them, too. It's just to heighten the, it's to heighten the drama. It's to heighten the tension. And that um, I found annoying. Now, that said... I like the very Star Trek idea here that the enemy isn't actually an enemy. The enemy is a situation. I mean, there is a thing to be defeated, but it's not like a bad guy to be defeated. It's not like a monster to be defeated. It's just situational or a situation um, actually tied into a situation. Mm-hmm. And, and that almost undoes Worf, unfortunately, that there's nothing there to fight. But I like the fact that we weren't dealing with a bad guy of the week. Um, I also like the fact that there is more than one thing going on here. They know what the problem is. The problem is the Tykens Rift. Okay, well, did that drive me to be crazy before? No. Ah, so we've actually got two problems. <laughs> In fact, I would argue the problem is not the Tykens Rift. <laughs> yeah, the problem right. is these other guys driving them nuts. Um, so is it the best episode? Not by a long shot, but I actually ended up liking it because of all the other stuff that you can sort of watch and follow and because there's a lot of great acting here. We always talk about how great Patrick Stewart is. He's not the only one this time. And also people weren't afraid to look bad. Um, yes. You know, props to uh, the makeup artists because um, Maria, Marina Sirsis is just a gorgeous, gorgeous woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Deanna Troy is always a gorgeous, gorgeous character. Eh, questionable fashion taste, but, you know, always a gorgeous <laughs> woman. And uh, boy, did she look, you know, rough in this episode. And that's not yeah. something that you a lot of times see. You'll, you know, you'll see somebody's hair tousled a tiny bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that indicates, oh, man, they've had it rough. But, I mean, everybody kind of looks, everybody looks really haggard here. Um, yeah. Patrick Stewart, of course, chief among them. And just amazing. I mean, all that is is like lowering his head by like half an inch, I think. I mean, it's just changing his body language, as you said. Yeah. So I think it holds up. I don't think it's great, but I think it works. Honestly, mm. that, that's me. But I, you know, I don't know. I like sort of the I like sort of the mind blapery episodes. What about you? Yeah. I, I mean, there are huge problems with this episode. Um, and and part of it is Deanna floating in the the nightmare world. Yeah. Um, the pacing is slow. It's kind of all over the map story wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a lot going for it. Uh, this episode sets a mood really nicely, and psychological horror is a a story type that fits very intriguingly onto the format of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. You know, Star Trek is this format. It's this sort of 
the, this, as people have described it, the sandbox that, that Gene Roddenberry created. But what's cool is you get to apply these different types of stories on top of that. And sometimes they're funny and sometimes they're action adventure and sometimes they're contemplative um, sort of human nature stories. Hopefully you get a little bit of all of the above when you can, but sometimes you get to do a horror story. And that's what this is, is people going mad and, and the worst of their fears coming out of them. Um, I feel like, you know, maybe part of the problem here is that we have a repeated TV problem that you kind of can't escape. A mysterious disease is going to wipe everybody out until we solve it in 45 minutes. Right. You know, so, so the, the stakes, you sort of don't necessarily feel those stakes uh, as you would in, say, a feature film or something where you didn't know that everybody was coming back the next week. Um, this story would have actually worked great in the first season. So imagine if you didn't have The Naked Now, Mm -hmm. which was, sure, call it an homage. I'm not going to call it an homage. (laughs) I'm going to call it a remake, a ripoff of The Naked Time. Mm -hmm. Um, You're telling the same kind of story, but it would have been a clear enough delineation from the original that we're, we're starting something new. You know, we can still do the same kind of character journey, people who are losing their minds, people who are acting in ways that are bizarre for them, but we're not just replaying the same story. So I I think this would have been a cool idea to play with. Again, maybe tweaking that script a little bit differently so you you get rid of the the problem or the slow moments that are there. Um, But really, that's the worst that I can say about it. I think the acting here is pretty good, like we talked about. Um, they're tired and cranky and a little just off through the whole thing. And I like that there are these quiet moments where there's not a lot of dialogue and the camera is placed a little bit away from the action, mm-hmm. um, particularly like Picard coming back onto the bridge after his uh, turbo lift freak out. Nice little moments like that um, that I think any other show would have handled uh, very differently and not as well here. So, in a way, yes, this show holds up. Um, in another way, it doesn't, just because the, the so much of it hinges on Deanna. Yeah. But then those are the weaker moments of the show. Yeah. And that's not a slight on her, because we, we, we love Marina and we love Deanna. But that, unfortunately, undoes this episode. So I'll give it a pass. I'm, I'm going to give it like that 52. Two percent, yes, <laughs> it holds up. <laughs> I'd go a little bit higher than that, but yeah, I mean, okay, you do, okay, you yeah. do have the yeah. same problem. I mean, it's like we talked about a few weeks ago when she lost her powers, and then were her powers going to stay gone? Right. Had her powers stayed gone, then suddenly you actually would have had at least for the rest of this season, you would have wondered, okay, well, you know, the Enterprise is going to get out of it. Oh well, mm-hmm. but they might not get out of it. Because remember what happened to Deanna. I mean, not like the whole enterprise is going to be destroyed, but like, what if they had gotten, what if they had stopped those other things, but we're still stuck here for three more weeks? Yeah. Man, that, that might've actually been kind of an interesting thing too. Like, okay, so we're not going crazy, but we're starting to get a little nuts. Right. Because we can't move and you know, all that stuff. Um, What about messages? Did we learn anything here? Um, You know, if we say, get your eight hours of sleep, Sure. That's not going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Not the way you and I work. Not for Um, me, no. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes the fear really is all in your head. You know, Mm -hmm. we mentioned that with uh, Deanna and with Beverly, um, that they have nice moments about that. Um, But 
seriously, this isn't really a message episode, but that's okay. This is, again, using that Star Trek format to do a different kind of story with a different point. Um, So I'm okay with not having a you see Timmy moment in this. What about you? Well, I mean, again, we have to dream in order to survive. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like we should actually say that every episode. I feel like they should say that every episode. I feel like we should all get up in the morning and say that. Say that, Having yeah. maybe just dreamed or maybe not. And then, you know, the other thing of don't just assume you know what the problem is. They think the problem is that they're stuck. And mm-hmm. it turns out being stuck is just one problem. Now, I don't like the implication that, oh, you think you know what the problem is. Turns out you may have several. But, um, you know, but I, I sort of like the... The inherent message seems to be don't don't assume that you know what's going on just because you think you know what's going on because there may be something underlying. I guess yeah. It, yeah. It, it's it just basically demands critical thinking and who doesn't like to be demanded of from forty eight minutes of television, huh? <laughs> I agree with that. All right, Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at Roddenberry.com. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That's Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. It's a problem that affects me, Ken, all the time. And Ray, I know it's a problem that affects you. Next week, Identity Crisis. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Okay. And transmission.